0: I've always been fascinated by tipping points, these catalytic moments that move people or organizations from good to great. These moments, these watershed, these boiling point moments. Like what is it that makes some churches more successful than others? Not like money and the amount of people that show up. That's not success in the kingdom of God. But what makes churches more successful than others, like or even sports teams, like coaches? Why are some, like basketball coaches, just more successful than others? Why do some contend for championships regularly or win them, and others just don't? All the other coaches know the game. They play their whole lives. But why do some move from good to great? What's the difference? What are they doing that's different than others? I've always been fascinated by that. How do they get over the hump and Get to those tipping points that move you from good to great. You know, this happened in the city of New York. If you went to New York City, I didn't go in the 1970s. I wasn't alive yet. But if you went in the 1970s, I heard it was a pretty shady place to go. Anybody, can anybody relate to that? I know I went in 1989 when I was 10 years old. And even then, I was like, whoa. It was like, it's probably, it's always, it's New York. But it was so bad, the crime rate, the vandalism, Times Square was not a place you want to bring your family. And then so they, then Mayor Rudy Giuliani implemented a system called the Broken Window Policy, which is if they saw any buildings with a broken window, they, report, they said you have to report that to the city and we will fix it as soon as possible. Because if someone sees one broken window, then it gives the implication, well, we can break another one, right? And they gave the order, if any subway cars had graffiti on them, Those cars had to be immediately pulled off the line and repainted and put back on the line. No compromise. And slowly but surely, after they started this in 1995, the city began to get transformed. People began to have more uh, care for the litter they would see. They began to have pride in their city again. Times Square began to look a little bit like Disney World. Maybe a little bit, not quite, but a little bit. And it became more family friendly now now they probably wish they could go back to that i've heard things aren't going so well in new york but that was a tipping point for the city it was that catalytic moment that seemed to change it from good to great and you know today our country is in is in the need of a tipping point amen and then it's in the need of a revival or an awakening we're at that place where we have to get over that hump and it's going to come through the church of jesus christ a transformation, a revival, an awakening. A new move of the Holy Spirit across this land yet again. That, that is our only and best hope for our country is to pray and work for that to happen. For a tipping point to come for our country. Now here's an image of tipping point in a very simplistic way. You've got the Sisyphus effect, which is a Greek uh, mythological king named Sisyphus who is judgment in the afterlife was to roll a boulder up a hill for eternity. And right when he gets to the top, the boulder rolls back down. He never quite reaches that point, never gets over the hump. But then the tipping point can be when you to get over the hump, it's called the snowball effect, where your momentum of your organization or your life or even your church becomes too much to resist. And it begins to roll on and ahead and ahead. Now, sometimes people outside the church can look at Christianity as that Sisyphus thing, a sort of religion more than relationship, right? Or you see it more as, well, I gotta go to church and I gotta go to communion, get, get uh, baptized and um, go to confirmation and you jump through these hoops and just feels like something, this obligation. And that's not at all what Christianity should offer. That's the perception. And if that's you or if that's someone you know, you know, be encouraged, because there was times where the disciples of Jesus in the New Testament, they tended to feel like it was sort of a Sisyphus moment for them. They didn't always give the right answer. They were often confused. They often didn't know what to do. They would often miss the point. Jesus would do the miraculous and they would sort of be stupefied like they had some sort of role to play you know, in that. And so if that's you, be encouraged because God has more for his people God, I love this sentence, there is more. There's a book by a guy named Randy Clark who who came up with that, but I love that phrase, that to God, there is more. There's always more to God. God desires more for his people, more of, not not just physical blessing, but spiritual blessings in our lives. That Jesus never left the side of his disciples, even when they were confused. Even when they felt like they were at the bottom of the hill and nothing made sense and felt like a lot of work, he didn't leave their side. He didn't judge them. He didn't make them feel stupid for making mistakes. He was with them even in those moments when nothing was going the way they thought it should. He even helped push them by his grace, really through the power of the Holy Spirit, to a tipping point. To the tipping point that there's more to God. And because there's more to God, we have nothing to fear. See, we serve a God that has no limits. God is not limited by his sovereignty. He has no limits. The only limit that can happen is on the expectation of his people. It's on our own measure of faith. That's the only limit that can happen. God's will is always to give more resurrection and life and healing and transformation. The limit is never on his end. It can only be on ours because there's always more And God wants to tip the scales, I believe, in our lives and in our churches, in our church. So what moved the disciples of Jesus? What tipped the scales for them? Because you see a real difference from earlier stories in the New Testament. And then you get past Pentecost and it's it's an interesting contrast. If you look at something like Luke chapter eight, um, which is a story of the disciples on the water with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and a storm gets kicked up and they think they're gonna die. Okay, we're gonna read that. If you look at that, it's sort of like the bottom of the hill. There's lots of stories like that, right? Where Jesus like says, well, we've got 5,000 people, you feed them. And the the disciples are like, what? You want me to take part in this? And then you look at something like Acts chapter 3, which I would say is the snowball. It's the other side of the hill. And things are really rolling. And you have to ask yourself, what happened? What was the difference when you see the contrast of what occurred? So let's look at Luke chapter 8. And see the story first. One day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they put out, and while they were still sailing, he fell asleep. Jesus fell asleep. A windstorm swept down on the lake, and the boat was filling with water. This is a very scary situation, and they were in danger. They went to him and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke up, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? They were afraid and amazed. And he said to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Master, we're going to drown. We're going to die. Don't you care that I'm going to die? Whatever faith is, it's the opposite of this panic how do you get the faith this is what i let's just get down to the nitty-gritty here right how do you get the faith that helps you not panic in the face of a storm maybe it's easier said than done but if there's always more to god and god always wants to help us then how do we get that sort of faith right the answer may lay may lie in jesus's fascinating question that he asked them where's your faith where's your faith because he doesn't say, your faith really sucks. He doesn't give a value judgment. He doesn't say, your faith is weak. He says, where is it? He's almost like saying, get it out. <laughs> right? You have it. You're just not using it. Where is your faith? Because we can tend to think that faith is sort of like automatic, like a passive app that runs in the background of our lives and it's like a heater that kicks on in the winter time you know it's like it just sort of happens this passive thing but Jesus' question shows that faith is actually not that at all and it's the opposite of that panic but he's saying faith requires an instigation it's a deliberate action my, my older brother he's five years older than me and he's a really uh talented artist and he actually went to the NC State School of Design and he was really good at drawing but he practiced a lot he would just draw things all the time when we were kids and I remember people would always say to him oh I wish I had your talent you know I wish I could draw like you and he would say well I had to practice and they'd say yeah but I can't do it like you do he's like well I practiced you know because we tend to think that that faith is just something you catch like a cold but in reality, it, it's something you, can, you all have. It's like Jesus saying, where is it? Pull it out. Because people may say to me or they'll say to you, I wish I had your faith. I wish I could do it like you. I wish I could believe like you do. And the only limit in that statement is yourself. God is not limited in that moment. It's something that's already there. Where is it, Jesus says. Get it out. I need to see it. It's in you. You have it. And then the disciples ask a question back to Jesus which is, who is this? Who is this man? And essentially, Jesus says to them, you've been looking at the storm and not looking at me. If you were looking at me instead of the storm, you wouldn't be panicking right now. You would remember who's in charge of this moment. What you're really doing is you're not, it's not, just, it's, it's that, it's not that you're not showing faith. It's that you're refusing to exercise the faith that you already have. You're refusing to get it out. His limit is not on his sovereignty, it's on our expectation to get it out and use it. See, every Christian could come to a tipping point in your lives where you decide to trust God's character and then you act on it. I came to a tipping point when I was about 22 years old. You know, there's lots of tipping points, right, in our lives, there's lots of moments that tip the scales over that hump it's one little moment incremental times where god does something and you realize you get one step closer to trusting more and more at first maybe just jumping off a curb and then it turns into just bungee jumping for jesus without with with no uh, re- regard you know cuz every time he's been faithful when i was about 22 years old i was a camp director of a of a mission camp in western north carolina and youth and adults would come to the camp and they would stay there for a week and we do mission work around the area. We would uh, raise money to pay for wheelchair ramps and do all these projects. And um, so I was in charge of the staff and the campers and making sure everybody got fed and all this stuff, 22 years old. And I remember one day I was uh, particularly stressed out because you get about four or five hours of sleep a night, you know, you're working so hard to, to just run everything Thankfully, I was younger, so that was, that was still, but still I was tired. And I, I remember one day I did something I've never done to this very day as I was driving. I came up on a red light, and I didn't even acknowledge that it was red. I just cruised right through it, just, I was like, I didn't even realize I had done it until I got to the next stoplight, and a woman pulls up next to me, rolls down her window, and starts to yell at me. She was an off-duty police officer, and she said, if I was on duty right now, I would pull you ever so quick. She began to give, it, give me the business. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm serving Jesus. Like, don't, don't be mad at me. I'm doing my best. I've, I don't have any sleep, and oh my gosh. So I was all stressed out. I'm in trouble, the law, you know. I, and I started driving, and then someone calls me. They said, hey, all the toilets don't work at the camp. There's no water now I have like an ecological disaster in my hands with 60 people with no toilets and I'm like, God I can't do this I'm about to lose my mind and I never forgot this, I was driving along some country road in Lenore and there was like a business, some businesses will have like a big rock like near the road, like an architectural sort of stone, you know and I remember I was driving by and I looked at a rock and I just felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and he said, I'm your rock as I looked at that rock, he said to me I'm your rock look at me don't don't look at the storm where's your faith get it out i don't see it don't let all these don't let the waves and the wind and the stuff get you down keep your eyes where it needs to be that was a tipping point for me one step closer than i was before i was like okay point taken a few weeks later we were 500 dollars short to raise money i don't know where i'm gonna get the money from we prayed about it god we really need 500 dollars The next day, I go to the post office to check the mail. There's one letter in that mailbox. Unmarked. No return address. I open it. All that was in there was five $100 bills. Where's your faith, Jesus says. Get it out. I can't see it. It's there. Use it. Because if you do, the miraculous can occur. It was these, these tipping points. These tipping points that happen. So if Luke 8 is sort of the upward push, the confusion, the drudgery like oh my gosh we're not getting it right he never left their side in the storm he doesn't judge them when they get it wrong but then look at the contrast with acts chapter 3 check this out after pentecost this is the first recorded miracle in the book of acts after pentecost one day peter and john were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon and a man lame from birth was being carried in people would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple he asked them for alms Peter looked intently at him as did John and said look at us and he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them but Peter said I have no silver or gold but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement what had happened to him. Peter and John were on that boat in Luke chapter 8. They were there. They didn't get their faith out. Acts chapter 3. Jesus doesn't have to ask them, where's your faith? They don't even, they're not even necessarily following Jesus at this point. They're acting like Jesus at this point. They're doing the things he would have done. And I love how when this guy gets healed, he doesn't just slowly sort of pain, he doesn't raise up. The guy jumps up, okay? he's been paralyzed, and he jumps up. I'm 42, and I have a hard time jumping at this point. The jumping's easy. It's the coming down part. That's the bad part, right? This guy jumps up out of the healing that he gives. See, all the New Testament miracles, they point to a future day when all will be restored. The prophet Isaiah spoke about this in Isaiah chapter 35, with some great detail to this story, actually, and many of the miracles of Jesus. Then the eyes of those who are blind will be opened. The ears of those who can't hear will be unplugged. Those who can't walk will leap like a deer, and those who can't speak will shout for joy. This is a great illustration that there is there's more. There is more to God's plan for the earth. There is more to God's plan for his church. There is more. There is always more. The only limit is the expectation of our faith is the expectation we bring to the equation. See, the miracles of faith that the disciples did here, that Jesus did so many of, they were never like naked displays of power. The miracles were always to help somebody, to move somebody, maybe over that tipping point of their own lives. See, if you've ever read the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha are some of the gospels that weren't approved in the canon of scripture, they weren't approved to go into the Bible. The Catholic Church still has the Apocrypha as part of their Bible, but we don't as Protestants. And here's some of the reasons why. Because the Gospel of Thomas, for example, tells a story where a little uh, adolescent Jesus gets mad at a little, another little boy, and Jesus turns the little boy into a pig. Okay? That's, not a na- that's just a naked display of power. But see, when there's so many other reasons for that. But see, when the miracles occur in the New Testament, they're always to alleviate suffering. They're always pointing to that future day when all will be restored. See, God did not invent blindness. God didn't invent suffering. He didn't invent a world filled with death. He hates all those things just as much as you and I do. Biblical miracles are not a suspension of the natural order. They're actually a restoration of the natural order. Think about it this way. Jesus' resurrection is maybe the only natural thing in creation. You see what I'm saying? It's an upside-down way of thinking. All the miracles that are happening are pointing to the way things are supposed to be and will be in heaven right now and in the life to come when the new heavens and the new earth come together, as it says in the book of Revelation. Well, back to Acts chapter 3. This man that they heal... He's looking for something superficial. He's looking for silver and gold. He's looking for that thing that he thinks will help him. And Peter and John know that's not what he needs. It's like when Jesus heals um, the paralytic in Matthew chapter nine. What does he do before he heals him? He says your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. See, Jesus knows there's plenty of miserable people walking around that can walk. There's plenty of miserable people who are rich. Their deepest need you have is to have your sins forgiven. Not just the external stuff. That's not your deepest need. Your deepest need is to be forgiven of sin. Peter and John could have given him money, but that's not what he primarily needed. See, if you know your sins are forgiven by by God, then you you can come up against anything that's in front of you. That it's all gain, ultimately, in the life of the Christ follower. That that you can face what's ever in front of you. That gives such incredible hope. Such incredible hope. Now, we could hear these stories, and I've thought this before, too. You hear Peter and John and Jesus, and they're healing people, and you think, well, that's Peter, John, and Jesus. I'm not Peter, John, and Jesus. I can barely tie my shoes in the morning. I have a hard time not spilling coffee on myself. I forget to do all sorts of things. How am I supposed to pull off miracles in the world, Okay. See, but see, again though, that's us limiting us. God's not limiting you. God doesn't want to limit you. God doesn't want to limit His church. There is always more. But to be fair, you could be in a storm right now, and the winds are raging, and the water is coming up over the bow, and you feel like you're going to drown, and everything's falling apart, and you say to God, God, don't you care? And there's plenty of prayers like that throughout the Bible. And that's why the Bible is true because it has such a, a authenticity to its message. It's not afraid to let people be people and say, God, don't you care? Like read Ecclesiastes, read a lot of the Psalms. It's just people being real and that's good. God, don't you care? I'm gonna die. But here's the difference though. You're going through the storm like they did Jesus has been in the boat the whole time. He might be asleep, but he's there. He's there with you the whole time. He hasn't gone anywhere. And eventually, Peter, James, and John, and all the rest of them, they got past some sort of tipping point. You could say, in a general way, it was Pentecost, and that certainly was a big big part of it. But more specifically, their mentality changed. They knew that there was more to God. And because there was more, they had nothing to fear. The apostle Paul gets us into that mentality in Philippians chapter 1, where he says these astounding words to get us into their mindset, the way they thought. For to me, I'm gonna read, for to me living is Christ and dying is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, to die. For that is better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you, my reader. I'd rather, maybe you still need me. And he lived on for a little while longer. But he's really saying, he has this mindset of, if I live, it's for God. And if I die, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? I could die. And if I die, I get to be with Jesus. Jesus. Either way, it's a win-win scenario. It's this mentality that they had that said, circumstances may tell me how I'm going to die, but I refuse to let them tell me how to live. Amen? I refuse to let the world tell me how I'm going to live. Yeah, I'm going to die one day. But it's all gain. It's all gain with Christ. When I'm weak, I'm strong. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Greater is he... That's greater is Christ that's in you, that is in the world. The same spirit that wrote Jesus from the dead can live within you. Now, I'm, when I was working on this this week, I realized that if you had a scale of Christian-y messages from zero to 10, this is like a seven or an eight, right? And someone could be listening, but you're not, you're not there yet. Like, my only tipping point for today is just to somehow feel God's presence. Like maybe you're like a zero or a one today. And I think that's fair too. You just need forgiveness. You just need a place where you know that God's presence is real and with you. And you know can feel the healing presence of the Holy Spirit. You're in the right place because Christianity is never for for the self-sufficient. It's never for the people that are proud and think they have it all figured out. For the strong and the unshakable. And here's the mystery of it all. Is that when we admit our weaknesses to God, he makes us strong. He fills in your gaps. He lifts you up when you admit your dependence on him. And when you bow down and do that, you find that you've moved from darkness to light. When you let go of your life, you found your life. You're in the right place. Maybe today Jesus is saying to you, come to me. Where's your faith? Just get it out. Let me see it. Trust me. I'm not going to let you drown. And I'm not only not going to let you drown, but I have such a plan for your life that you could be used as an instrument for healing in the world, that God loves you enough not just to leave you as you are, but to change you and then make you into an instrument like Peter and John to do their miraculous. There is more to his plan for you than you could ever possibly imagine. In a little bit, I'm going to say a prayer. And I'm going to invite anyone that's listening that's never given your life to Jesus before to simply do that and to taste and see that he's good, to taste and see that the promises that you read about in the Bible, are true. There's more to God you could possibly imagine. And after we pray and we sing a few songs, we have some free materials we'd love to give you simply as a gift to you to help you in your walk of faith and when we get to that point in the service I'll invite you to come forward and say a prayer with me if you if wish and I would love to give some of these materials to you but let's, let's pray now together God in heaven we do indeed surrender this moment to you we do indeed Lord thank you that you meet with us in those moments where we look at you and go Lord who is this? Who stills the waves and calms the seas? And your answer back to us is don't look at the waves. Don't look at the water over the bow. There's more. There's more to this life than just what we see with our eyes or with our five senses. God, you've made us to be recipients of your grace that we are meant to to be temples of the Holy Spirit, that we can know the indwelling power of the Spirit of God in our lives and that you will make us new people in Christ. I pray for any believers that are here today and they're watching and they're listening. I pray that you give them, oh God, a fresh touch from above, an encouragement in their faith to let go of the burdens they carry today into this place and know of your healing presence upon their lives. And I also pray for anyone listening or watching today that they don't know whether a trust is.
1: Maybe they have a head
0: knowledge of who you are, God. Maybe they were in church when they were a child. But God, your word to them today is there is more. I invite you to taste and see that I am good. I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And it's simple as an act of faith, Lord, to say, I let you in. I give you my life. Forgive me of my sin and make me a new creation. Lord, indeed today, we do surrender all. (laughs) We surrender, God, the call maybe you have in our lives, the ways, God, we know we failed. Thank you, God, that when we bow down.